Hello, I'm Montana. And I'm Samantha. And you're listening to Reaper Tales. Today, I'm going to be telling Montana about John Paul Danishka, which, by the way, I had to practice that multiple times. Um, And he was known as the Southwest Molester. Um, But first, Montana, what are we drinking tonight? Today Other than is, a lot of shots. Okay, yeah, no, uh, today we're actually doing a choose your own adventure because we didn't want to do a pairing with this topic. It's very uh, typically when it's something super uh, gross Serious, and gross. awful and terrible. Yeah, we don't do a pairing with it because a lot of it would just be terribly morbid and uh, uncouth. Yeah, one would say not, not appropriate. Not appropriate. So it's a choose your own adventure. I am currently drinking a uh, Coastal Love by Wicked Weed. It's a hazy IPA. Wicked Weed is one of my favorite. Or I would say it's my husband's favorite brewery, but it's become one of my favorites too since that's where we go every year for our anniversary. But Samantha, what are you drinking? Don't. <laughs> I know you find that grosser than me going gross. Uh, I am drinking something that was uh, new that I found, and it's pretty tasty. It's Abita Giacomo, I think is how you say it, Juicy IPA. Um, and it's it's pretty tasty. I don't like the sweet, fruity beers. My husband does. Um, so he got his fruity, sour, gross beer, and I got this one. So <laughs> I'm happy with my choice. <laughs> good for him (laughs) so cheers cheers all right montana are you ready i'm not i feel like i should have taken like all the shots (laughs) yeah um so i am gonna i am gonna start it out by saying as the moniker implies this case is going to be about molestation and rape i'm not going to go into much detail But if you don't want to hear about these kinds of crimes or if it could possibly trigger you, I completely understand. Skip this episode and uh, we'll have a new one out next week. Um, So trigger warning for anybody who's going to stick with me. Like I said, I'm not going to go into too much detail out of respect for the victims. And uh, honestly, he doesn't deserve that much time. Right. So... That being said, I'll get started. Take a deep breath. Okay, I'm ready to get this guy out of my head, to be perfectly honest, but I felt like he needed to be covered because I have not seen any coverage for this case. I think it was because it was such a small area that he stayed in, but there were so many victims that it really surprised me. And I stumbled across it. Uh, in Wicked North Alabama, a book I bought to get uh, some ideas about some local cases. And surprisingly, it was really hard to find information. So uh, I put together what I could. Pretty much everything comes from that book, Wicked North America. And that is by Jacqueline Proctor-Reeves. 
and a old Huntsville article um, that was titled The Southwest Molester. It goes through a lot of details. Each of them had a lot of details, but it wasn't the same details, so it actually worked pretty well. Um, I will also start this episode by mentioning something another podcast says often, which is morbid. Fresh air is for dead people. The reason for this saying is doors left unlocked and windows left open are frequently the excuse for these types of demented people and they use them to find victims. So stay safe. Lock your doors. Lock your windows. I've had this conversation with my husband. No one's safe. Your area, no matter how safe you feel, just do it. Not saying it's their fault by any means. Just don't give anybody an excuse. I personally check the doors and the windows before I go to bed. And I think my husband thinks I'm crazy. No, definitely not. I do the same thing. Oh, wait. No, I don't. My husband does. <laughs> I was about to say, I have to do that when I'm at your house. I so just, it, I don't know what's wrong with me. I just, you just pass out. You're like, all right, good night. And like, okay, I'm, I'll just check everything. All right, it's let's fine. sit down to watch this movie marathon. Five minutes in, I'm out. Basically. Yeah. Uh, Constantine. <laughs> yeah. It's always Constantine. So that's you may life. also you may also wonder why he's referred to as the Southwest molester as he stayed mostly in the Huntsville area. I was confused at first because obviously Alabama is southeast of the country, but it's actually because he mostly attacked victims in the Southwest area of Huntsville. So that's why he was given that name. Oh, interesting. And a quote from that old Huntsville article I mentioned, he had a name we couldn't pronounce and committed crimes we'll never forget. Gross. Yeah. So it was, like I said, it was very hard to find much information on the case. Um, most of the information I was able to gather was from that, those two sources I mentioned. And also there was a, an appeal that I was able to find that I'll go over um, later that I just found was interesting. Um, Cause I really don't see that too often. And it went into a lot of detail. It was the actual case. So it was pretty interesting outside of that. It was little bits and pieces here and there. And if you notice, I, I usually have a ton of sources. This is not going to have that many. The victims names, ages and specific stories were not available from most of what I could find. There were a few here and there, um, but I feel like they were protected as much as possible because this was such a small area. Um, so because of this, any names and details I was able to find, I just omitted that out of respect for the victim's privacy. Good. John Paul Danishka was born in New Jersey, surprisingly, on November 9th, 1943. The only information I was able to gather about his earlier years was from an article in the old Huntsville newspaper article. Um, his brother also feels that the brother he knew growing up is dead. The man who committed these crimes wasn't the same person, personable and caring brother that they remember. They didn't stay in close contact after John graduated from high school. He was four years older and they had different interests. However, there was no abuse at home, and their father was a respectable Air Force officer. Although the family traveled extensively, they were never unhappy or disadvantaged. Something had happened to John to radically change him from the good kid his brother knew him to be. The motives behind his crimes will quite possibly remain unknown. The crime started in May of 1978. 
A man would enter through an open window or unlocked door, though he did break into more than one house, of a white woman's home, because they were all white, after studying the home to make sure that there wasn't a man present. And he said it could have been that there were too many outside lights on, or perhaps a car was parked on the edge of a driveway to leave room for another car. So he basically just looked for any kind of indication that they weren't home, even if they were going to be coming home. Okay. The women were all between the ages of 17 and 25. And I say women in quotes because obviously 17 is not a woman, but that's how it was described. And they all lived in the Southwest Huntsville area. Gross. He would tie them up, usually with something he could find around him in the home, and sexually torture the women with objects he brought or found in the house. And lastly, he would usually ask for money. He sounds like um, the uh, Golden State Killer. Almost. Yeah, but not quite as... I hate to use the word sophisticated, but it's kind of along those lines. Like prepared. He, prepared. That's a good word. Um, I don't think he was quite as prepared. Um, I think he took advantage of the time period. It was 1978. So there was a lot more trust going around. Um, and this is a very small community in the southwest of Huntsville. So it. I think he just took advantage a lot of the situation being what it was. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's definitely not as sophisticated. Maybe it was, um, who was I thinking of the night stalker? Didn't he just use yeah. whatever he found? Yeah. Yep. Okay. He, yeah. he did that a lot. He didn't have, well, he did not have, um, he didn't have much of an MO and he didn't have a victim type. Um, but yeah, I mean, open window, open door, just took advantage of whatever situation he happened to come across. So yeah, yeah. pretty close. Just as gross. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is pretty much the main part where I'm going to get into a little bit more detail. So I am going to give a trigger warning. Skip forward about a minute if you don't want to hear any kind of detail whatsoever. This is an excerpt from Reeves' book, and it just gives a little bit more description that was provided by the attacker. Can I skip uh, forward? Please? <laughs> Cover your ears. <laughs> Take your headphones off. I'm just going to drink my beer. You go on. Okay. His weapon of choice was a knife, but he once used the leg from a table or even a sharp nail. He would, gag, he would gag his victim and wrap tape around her mouth. He would pull a switch off of a tree and hit her with it repeatedly. He once used a car antenna to beat the victim. The victims were consistent in their descriptions of the methods he used to torture them. One woman had a bandage over her breast from a recent surgery. She asked him not to cause any permanent damage. He later said, I didn't want to cause anybody any permanent injury, and I ran from that one. In fact, he did just the opposite, breaking the wound open, causing her to bleed, and necessitating a trip to the hospital. One woman made him angry because she smelled bad and was on welfare, and he disapproved and attacked her. You can't see me. You can't see me, but (laughs) this is the type of person we're talking. Well, the monster that we're Uh, talking about. I'm covering. I'm covering my face. I'm trying not to, so I don't muffle myself. And I'm. By the way, I'm not laughing. Actually, I am laughing because I laugh when I'm uncomfortable, and that is just one of my awkward things. I'm very uncomfortable with this situation. But go on. I went ahead and got it. I know. Done. I know. Thank you. 
Because the crimes seemed to be escalating, the police were worried that the crimes would soon turn to murder and quickly organized a task force to focus on the perpetrator that was terrorizing the southwest area of Huntsville. The police were very pressured to find the attacker, though they had nothing to go on. I mean, nothing to go so on. They couldn't, uh, the women didn't have like a description of him. No. They, wait, why not? Because they, he always attacked at night. So almost every time they were either asleep or they had just gotten home. So he would get into the house when they were facing away from him, like their guard was down and he would either put them straight onto the bed face first, or he would immediately cover their eyes. And then he'd beat them. Well, and he would gag them, bind them, and then he would do different variations of torture. Okay. And I'm guessing. Okay. All right. Like I said, I'm not going to go into too much detail. Um, From what I could find, he, it doesn't seem like he ever actually raped a woman himself. Um, He pretty much used objects only. Um, I found one that it kind of made it seem like he might have, but it was just so outside of the MO, but it was the last one. So he could have done that. Um, Wait, as an is, escalation isn't pen, it, even if it's with an object if it, there's penetration isn't it considered yes. rape okay yes um, but most of the cases that I heard that I was able to find it specifically said with an object and that's the only one that didn't say with an object so it could have been either one but since he never did it before I don't think so um, I'll also mention he never killed anybody So, I mean, not that this is any less of a crime or completely traumatizing, but he just never took it that far. Of course, the police said, you know, the only reason that was was because they they were able to, spoiler alert, catch him before it got to that point. Yeah, I mean, Um, if the Golden State Killer had been caught when he was the, uh, what was it, the something rapist or... mm -hmm. Whatever. I don't he wouldn't remember what it was before. I can't remember now. God, don't. This isn't a quiz. <laughs> putting yourself on for a quiz. I didn't do it. Uh, he wouldn't have become, but obviously, the yeah. Golden True. State Killer. So. And this is one case from all accounts that I could see, the police jumped on this as soon as they realized that there was something going on. So this was not one where they sat back and they're like, oh, it'll it'll be fine. Um, they did get right to this and it it probably helped them to realize that there was something really going on because he stuck with one area. It wasn't even just one city. It was one area of a city. So that made it pretty apparent that he was, it was the same person doing all of it. So I'm not sure if him using objects was in an effort to avoid giving police any additional evidence because DNA wasn't really evidence that was used at the time or if it was just what he preferred I think it was more of an MO it's what he went for and again he didn't get a chance to escalate it more than he did or he one of the one of the um, attacks the woman said that he told her that he had been castrated in a asylum and that's why he was using an object but that was never confirmed in anything else I saw. Or he was, I don't know if I can say this or not, so uh, correct me impotent. if I'm wrong. He was impotent. 
I'm going to say it's it's okay to say it. Okay. Yeah. Um, or he was impotent, uh, which you actually do find quite a bit with rapists, which is they can't perform. they can't perform. And so they try to force that performance on somebody who doesn't want it. And then they can't perform in that. And then that's why they get enraged. And, and a lot of times it'll go to women. To, yeah, yeah. It'll go to murder or men. It happens to men too. Mm-hmm. Um, he did seem to be extremely careful at each crime scene. He left no fingerprints and he was never seen by anyone who could identify him. Like I said, the women that he attached attacked didn't see anything. Um, there was more than one occasion that they had children in the home and they either didn't hear anything and didn't wake up or if they were close by, he bound them as well so that they couldn't, um, identify him. And he also picked times where, like I said, people were asleep, so they weren't even aware anything was going on. And because he attacked so quickly, the woman, women didn't even have time to react or sound any kind of alarm. Okay. Again, Golden State Killer. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, well, just wait. It it kind of, I, I really do think this was a case where he just got caught fast enough. So two women were attacked May of 1978, two in November, two in December, and there was an attempt on a woman in January. The police believe there was other attempts as well, but they didn't have any evidence of any more other than the Jan- the one in January. In the case they knew about, the woman's son had been playing on their apple tree in their yard when he noticed cigarette butts in a nearby alley. The previous day, the Southwest molester had entered their house, thinking the woman was home alone with her children. Imagine his surprise when her husband woke up and ran him out of the house. The police came shortly after and confirmed what they had feared. The intruder was the person that they had been searching for. The cigarette butts also showed that he had been watching the family prior to the attack, waiting for the right moment, though he denied that he ever did this later when he confessed. Um, They asked him this multiple times because of the way that he did these crimes, but he always denied that he stalked or watched anybody that was a victim. Yeah. He he basically just said it was always a crime of like opportunity. I I would assume like, I would assume in that instance, like he thought he was being smart and he got caught and all that other nonsense. And that makes him look bad. And so anything that makes him look bad, he's not going to admit to. True. It makes you look smarter if you're saying it's a crime of opportunity. I'm smart enough to do it. Yeah. And that gives him kind of an excuse why it didn't work. Um, if, If you're stalking somebody and then you still screw it up, not so good. Yeah. Idiot. Over 150 suspects were questioned and cleared within the first 10 months of the investigation. Of course, the number of women in self-defense classes soared as well as gun sales. Again, women, golden state killer. (laughs) I'm sure it wasn't ever mentioned, but I'm sure any type of home security also went up. Yeah. Women started taking extra precautions that they normally never considered before, asking someone to walk them to their cars, making sure to lock their car doors right away, and making sure their windows and doors in their houses were latched and locked. A reward of $10,000 was even offered for any evidence leading to a conviction. A law was put into effect by the then Governor Fob James that made sexual abuse a felony if the attacker entered the victim's home. Let's take a minute. Hang on. Number one. Can we wait a minute? Can Why you just, was that what you just said? Can we just can you just repeat what you just said? 
a law was put into effect by the then governor, Fob James, that made sexual abuse a felony if the attacker entered the victim's home. Okay. Uh, so why was this already not already the case? Number one. And why is it just in your home? Exactly. That was my second point. <laughs> why does it matter where it happened? And why did it take this for you to think, hmm, maybe we should, oh, I don't know, make uh, some kind of law that prevents people from doing this? But, you know, only in the house. Anywhere else, it's, it's, it's okay. Obviously, they're not saying it's okay, but still, like, seriously? 1978, or this was probably 79 when this actually went through. But, uh, anyway. Fucking Our patriarchy. <laughs> Just, what the, I have to stop, like, rubbing my chest. because there's, like there's a couple more things that I'm going to bring up that I know you're going to get very riled up on. I'm very, like, my face is getting hot right now because I'm so angry about this. Like, I understand that by what he was trying, what he was doing, what he had put into place, he was trying to protect people. Mm -hmm. What he was doing was perpetuating uh, this whole like thought process that sexual assault, if it's in your house and that's where your safe zone is, that only that can be a crime. But if you're at work and somebody grabs you on the ass, that's a boss or something like that, it's not sexual assault. Uh, Sexual assault is sexual assault, regardless of where it happens. Yeah, and you don't deserve it, and you didn't ask for it, no matter where it happens. Exactly. So, excuse me, listeners, our few listeners, our four listeners, if you hear this, like, weird swishy noise, it's me rubbing my chest because I am enraged. <laughs> I am upset. But go on, Samantha, please. This is, this is one reason why I wanted to do this case, um, not... You know, it, like I said, it wasn't covered. This this is also very enlightening for the way the state in which I currently live looks at things sometimes. Mm. Tell me Just about to it. be clear. The police even enlisted the help of all local law enforcement agencies. What? They actually did what they were supposed to? Color me surprised. They even reached out to the FBI. Good for them. They did one thing right. Hey, they were trying. They really didn't have anything to go on. Now, this is interesting. And tell me if you recognize why. Special Agent Robert Ressler even provided a profile. For those of you who don't know, Ressler and John Douglas are credited with the term serial, as well as were pivotal in forming the FBI's Behavioral Science Division. Okay. All right. His name didn't mean anything to me. But uh, what's his face dead? John Douglas. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they were among the first to start developing the profiles for perpetrators. So he delivered a profile and the profile stated, and I want you to remember this as we keep going. Hang on. Do I need to get my notebook out? <laughs> no, because you're not going to be able to write this fast. Okay. He's, he's a white male approximately 30 to 35 years of age, a sexual sadist who enjoys gratification through infliction of pain on others. Brutally involved in the crimes is displaced aggression caused by real or imagined injustices from women in the subject's life. 
He's a high school graduate with some formal education, possesses above average intelligence, has a possible arrest history, is a well-groomed individual, owns and operates a two to three-year-old automobile, which has been well-maintained and is a model employee. That is detailed. It's very detailed. It also um, kind of pairs up a lot with what his brother said. Right. So. Cool. <laughs> it's it's fascinating. Um, and And you'll see how on the nose he was with that profile. The break in the case came when a victim was attacked, and obviously this was the last victim, on September 19th, 1979, around 10.30 p.m. She was bound and gagged and had tape put over her eyes. Uh, quick trigger warning. This might bother some people, so like fast forward 15, 30 seconds. Her seven-year-old son, who was next to her in bed, was also bound. The attacker then proceeded to cut her, cut her inside her vagina, down the length of one leg, and around the breast area. He did not rape her. As he often did, he asked her where she kept the money in the house. And then he left. When the investigators came, a passerby reported seeing a small blue car parked in close to the scene of the crime around that time. The police checked the area and found tire tracks, and they were able to make plaster casts of the tread. They found the tire tracks were a match for a Bridgestone tire that were standard tires for Japanese cars such as Honda, Subaru, Toyota, Mazda, and Datsun. Based on the tread, it appeared they had been driven four to 5,000 miles. This information was provided by Smith Haywood, which I can't believe I found this. This was pretty interesting. He unfortunately passed away on August 2nd, 2020, but per his obituary, it said... Also of special note is Smith's involvement in the Southwest Molester case in the late 1970s. He was able to identify the make and model, tread and size of the tires, the type of vehicle, and the number of miles on the tires, information which contributed to the capture of the criminal. His expert testimony at the trial was also instrumental in the conviction of the molester. Smith quietly donated his monetary reward to the YMCA. Because he received that $10,000. How freaking amazing. Oh my God. That is, that is incredible. From start to finish. That is incredible. From a cast of a tire tread, he gave them basically everything they needed. And then he was like, you know what? I don't need this money. Yeah. And yeah. And he donated it to the YMCA. I mean, it was so cool. I was like, I have to include this. So now they knew the tire brand and what types of vehicles they were typically used with. So they went to the local foreign car dealer, Universal Volkswagen Subaru, on North Memorial Parkway. It was found that the tires matched exactly to a new Subaru. The dealer provided the name of an applicant from a sales contract, John Paul Dinoshka, who had bought a 1979 two-door blue Subaru Coupe in July of 1979. The The officers immediately submitted a background check. This background check came back with information related to a conviction in Alton, Illinois in 1974 and the details about the charges, which were strikingly similar to the crimes that were being committed in town. Okay. So Huntsville was not where his criminal history began. He was actually arrested and convicted of raping a woman in Illinois and was on parole when he moved to Huntsville. He was sentenced to 12 years in prison. Care to guess how long he served? Uh, I want to say three. Three years? Yeah, three years. Close, 32 months. 
and the last three months he spent in a work release program in Illinois. I'm sorry. No. 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 Twelve years. Got out in less than three. No. Bad. No. (laughs) How, I mean, in, I just, uh, how many times? After he, just, uh, can we just go back to it? Let's go back to it for a second. All right. Twelve years. All right. Thirty. Yeah, I knew this was going to be the second one that that bothered you. And we're not to the third one yet. Thirty-two months. Mm-hmm. Okay, thirty-two so just months. Under, just under three years. And his, you said his last year was on a his last work- his last three months were spent on a work release program. Okay, um, so basically he wasn't in jail those last three months. First off, anyone who is uh, some kind of violent criminal that's murder, rape, robbery, or assault should not be considered for a work release program. Nay, nay. Should not. They should not be considered. And I have a firm stance on this. Should not be no considered. No kidding. For early parole. I agree. They should not be considered for early release. There's no such thing as good behavior. There's no such thing as good behavior. Because let's let's be clear here. We have somebody, we'll say we have a man who... Um, rapes small children and he goes into prison and he's a model prisoner he doesn't have any children there the fuck do you mean he has good behavior exactly so here's my that's that's my little stance on that so do with that what you will i understand that it's not the same across the board and some people are in there not because they actually committed the crime, but because, you know, the system's fucked up. But at the same time, if somebody has a violent crime on the board, I don't believe that you should be considered, or they should be considered for any of those work releases, those early paroles, or the early releases. That's just me. I don't think that they should be considered for release unless they can go through an actual program where they can get better. Well, and the thing was, the lowest amount that I saw for his sentence was three years. So it was three to 12 years, but he was sentenced to 12. He didn't even serve three years. And And that was the low end. Okay. And so he wasn't actually on parole when he left because he left there and he went to Huntsville. He was as basically as soon as he was on parole. So that's the next sentence. After he was paroled February of 1977, he immediately moved to Huntsville to quote unquote, start over closer to his brother who lived on Barclay Avenue in Southwest Huntsville. But doesn't he have to go through like a couple of years of. So in this case, apparently his parole just required him to check in regularly with his parole officer. I think it was monthly. Oh, because uh, back then rape was not a violent crime. Uh, I forget. I forget my place, people. Go on, Samantha. Right. Um, even better, he was released from parole on April 5th, 1979. Fucking patriarchy. He had already been striking fear into the women of the city of Huntsville for over a year, and he wasn't finished. So he'd been checking in with his parole officer while he was still doing this. So yeah, yeah, good behavior really works. Yeah, your system really worked out. Good for you. Obviously, these similarities were not ignored by the police. Further investigation revealed that he also had an Alabama driver's license that had expired. This was more than enough for the police to have an excuse to arrest him and bring him in for questioning. He was driving his vehicle to 
his job when police pulled him over and brought him into the police station around 630 on September 21st, 1979. In the morning or at night? Do you know? PM. PM. All right. Until this point, he was not even on the police task force radar. He wasn't even one of the over 150 people that they questioned about the case. Jesus Christ. From all accounts, he was quiet, unassuming, and a loner. He was even described as boring by some people. He oh, served me, to- hang on. <laughs> let me guess. I'm going to interject you again. I'm going to interrupt you again. Let me guess. They looked at that arrest record. They only saw one case where he raped a woman and said, it was a one-off. She probably just said it. It was crying wolf. It didn't mean anything. Blah, blah, blah. Carry on. Well, I mean, I don't think they even looked at him, to be perfectly honest. Like, I don't I don't think he ever came up on the radar at all. Because um, I don't even know what their their idea was. But you'll you'll see in a minute why it should have occurred to them. But whatever. Wait, I thought they pulled his arrest records and they saw that. They, they didn't pull his arrest record until his car was identified by the tread that the they found. One. I got you. Yeah. I was getting ahead of myself and I was like, these motherfuckers are really going to sit here and see all of <laughs> no, this evidence no, no. and be like, you know what? No, she probably wore a tank top or something like that. Let me tell you. No, when I say this was quick. Okay, so the last, the last attack was September 19th. He was arrested September 21st. Oh, so okay. within within two days, they had the tire tread, they found the car, they pulled his background report, and they arrested him. What was That's a her- pretty quick turnaround. Yeah. Considering. It really is. What was our boy's name that identified the uh, treads again? Uh, yeah. Hang on. Smith Haywood. Our boy Smith Haywood doing mm-hmm. his job. That's right. Helping them out. Doing what he got to do. All right. Sorry. I was preemptively getting mad because I was already mad. You're already mad. It's going to happen. We're not even halfway through. You got this. Oh, good. Go ahead. (laughs) Uh, He had served his country in the Navy and even spent a tour in Vietnam. He had a master's degree from the University of Southern Illinois and a technical degree in water and wastewater technology. He taught well, in a college in Edwardsville, Illinois. I, I'm i very happy that you can pronounce Illinois better than <laughs> I can. Uh, <laughs> do not say Illinois. <laughs> Don't uh, anyway, I'm going I'm I'm to move past that and pretend it didn't happen. In fact, it was his technical degree in computer science that got him the position at the Huntsville computer firm Office Systems of America at 4717 University Drive as a quality control analyst and had even been promoted three times since he had been there. Well, I feel gross now. I need to be ticked at that. Jesus Christ. So... Uh, let's go into more information. He was active in a social circle at Haystack Apartment Community, where he had lived in the apartment 39A since July of 1978. He even assisted in planning a Halloween party in 1978 and won first place in the costume contest by dressing as an Italian chef. Okay. Were there young women there? Oh, I'm sure. Mm. If anyone asked what he did before coming to town, he said he, quote unquote, Worked in a prison. 
He started going to church and he reported monthly to his probation officer who never doubted that he was the model of rehabilitation. I was right. It was monthly. <laughs> yeah, he thought he he thought he had it. In case you were wondering how good probation officers are at their job. What the fuck? Meanwhile, he's currently currently attacking people while he's checking in monthly. Dressing as a chef, attacking people, model person. He goes to church mm-hmm. because he goes to church. Oh, I'm sure that had a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. Well, and that is a social function in the South. Yeah. Let's well, be honest. Yeah. Anyways, carry on. Where I get us in more trouble. <laughs> I don't know if you're keeping count, but uh, the profile that was provided has pretty much been spot on. Well, no, I have. But yeah, carry on. In a pretrial psychiatric evaluation, he was also characterized as in- intellectually bright, scoring in the upper 2.2% of the general population, which I don't know what general population means, but basically he was pretty smart. It was also established that he was resistant to feelings of guilt and had a low tolerance for frustration. He tended to be. He's a psychopath. We're not there yet. Okay. He tended to be selfish, callous, impulsive, and resistant to learning from experience and punishment. Sociopath, psychopath. (laughs) He rationalized any deviant behavior on his part and that previous imprisonment or therapeutic efforts had little to no effect or improvement. Uh, it was, and he's a narcissist. Okay. It was determined that there was no evidence that his thinking was impaired in any way and that he did not suffer from schizophrenia or manic depressive disorder. He was diagnosed, however, with antisocial personality disorder and as being a sadist sexual deviant. Okay. No. Uh, I mean, maybe. Whatever. I got from that. Narcissist, sociopath, psychopath. Yeah. Basically. I mean he he had no remorse whatsoever yeah um but if you talk but he also knew how to talk because he won his defense attorney over like this guy the stuff that he said and i did not put it in there because it was just gross he was like i can't believe that these people would say this about him and i just liked him as a person i'm like are you okay sure that's a narcissist i mean he knew how to win people over obviously nobody even suspected it uh, and maybe maybe I, I have that wrong, and so forgive me if the new term is antisocial personality disorder and it's not psychopathy. I think it they're two different things, but I think they can be interchangeable sometimes when, when you're talking. Um, but that is what I typically have heard is antisocial, antisocial personality disorder. Okay. Uh, he blamed pressure at work for his crimes, stating that when there was less criminal activity, it was because his workload wasn't as heavy. He said his crimes were because of anger, not sexual fantasies. And he stated that his biggest regret was being caught just before he achieved financial independence through his job at Amway. And after he had found a relationship that he thought had a future. Oh, he works at Amway. <laughs> oh yeah, do you remember? Do you remember a tie to a certain other person? Oh my god, he worked. What at is Amway. it with Amway? These people are messed up. It's an it's an MLM, right? It's a multi level marketing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I just heard I just heard the thing about Nexium. 
And I'm yeah. like, oh my gosh, seriously, am I? No. No. Oh my god. It's a <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Yeah. Go on. He also claimed that if he had just had someone to talk to, none of this would have happened. And he would have had to take out his anger. He would not have had to take out his anger and frustrations like he did. Okay. All right. Here we go. All right. This is gaslighting. We're getting into here's, it. Here's, here's all right. three. This is three. <laughs> this is me. This is me getting into it. If if society had not done him dirty, yeah, he wouldn't be like this. It's it's mm-hmm. everybody else's fault. That's yeah, a narcissistic absolutely. tendency. Uh, also, also, if he only had somebody to talk to, bro, you're in social settings all the time. How could you not find somebody to actually like date? Oh, is it because you're a creepy fuck? Fuck. Oh, no, he had he had somebody that he was in a relationship with. That I'm was sorry. that was the thing. He he had found a relationship that he thought had a future. Obviously, he couldn't tell her what was going on. She wasn't going to stick around. Yeah. If only he had go to therapy. Oh, but he claimed he couldn't go to therapy because the therapist might go to his probation officer and he would get thrown back in jail. That that was his other claim. So it's everybody. It's everybody yeah. else's fault. Yeah, totally. Typical narcissistic behavior. Okay. So as we've already established, he was an Amway salesman. One of the accounts from the victims I read even specified that she had expressed concern about the attacks to a couple of Amway salesmen that came by her house that morning before she was attacked, May 6, 1979. She had said she was worried because her husband was out of town on business and it was their anniversary. She was attacked that night and nearly killed, but her son started coughing uncontrollably in the other room and it seemed to spook him. Before he left, he told her he wasn't going to hurt her anymore. Then she heard the stairs creak, the front door open, and silence. She was somehow able to get to her phone and call her brother-in-law who lived across the street. He sprinted over and found her still bound in her bedroom. He took care of her, calling the police and her husband. In the weeks and months that followed, now this is going to be number four, possibly. In the weeks and months that followed, someone that they had barely known started coming over with some regularity. It was one of the Amway salesmen. It was John. It didn't take long for them to become friends, and John was always there to help in any way he could. He would even take them out on his boat when he and his girlfriend Loretta would go on outings. He just seemed like a nice man with Christian values. John often sat outside with the husband, talking about his life and salvation. When they heard about the arrest, they couldn't believe it. The husband even went by the jail to speak with him, but was not allowed in. In his confession, John expressed remorse about the attack on his quote-unquote friend, because he did wind out, wind up finding out what a fine, what fine Christian people they were. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. Uh, Like that's, you feel, that's a whole new level. You feel sorry now that you know them. Yeah, basically. He doesn't feel sorry now that he knows. He didn't feel sorry now then that he knew them. Because he doesn't have remorse. He felt sorry because it interfered with a relationship he thought he had built. And that is something that's positive for him. He didn't feel sorry at all. He just... He felt sorry for himself. Yeah. Well, oh yeah, he's real good at that. 
What an asshole. He was arrested September 21st, 1979 at the age of 35. Remember, profile was 30 to 35. And the grand jury returned 26 indictments containing 41 counts. There were several trials over several weeks, each delivering a surprising verdict. In total, he was convicted for two counts of rape, two counts of assault with intent to maim, one count of burglary and assault with intent to ravish, 11 counts of first-degree burglary, and one count of second-degree burglary. No attempted... Now, that's what he was convicted of. No attempted murder? No. No. I don't think he ever got close enough for them to be able to prove definitively and get him convicted of that that last one she said she didn't believe she would live well okay so in that case he actually i was trying not to go into details but he did multiple things to strangle to to strangle her i think he was at first he was trying to bind her and then he got pissed the more he was the the further he got into it and he he started strangling her but i don't know that at first he meant to do that and then it just kept escalating and he like kept adding more things to it to where she could barely breathe so that's why she thought she was going to die yeah but i would like to know what the threshold is here (sighs) so would i i would really like and okay i'll give it to the court system there they gave him 41 indictments right Mm. 26 indictments with 41 counts. Okay, 41 counts, 26 indictments. So they were stacking up charges to ensure mm-hmm. that this motherfucker would never see the light. Yeah, they were again. stacking up as much as possible. And that, to me, that goes back to the time and what uh, constituted like a life sentence. And really, back then, you're looking at a life sentence for murder. Right. And the first degree. First degree murder. And even then, you're looking at maybe 10 years, depending on the state and things like that. Right. So they were really stacking up these charges to ensure he never got out because they saw the writing on the wall. But at the same time, this is going to, sorry to get a little bit political here, but at the same time, it goes back to what the lawmakers that you vote into office put into place as far as laws and what constitutes a life sentence, what constitutes what somebody can go into prison and what somebody can stay in prison for and the longevity of violent crime in the penitentiary system. So all that said is you saw those people in the judicial, 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 judicial judicial system come into play and stack these charges, but that doesn't happen in every case. And it no, shouldn't have I was actually, been. this one really surprised me. And I wonder sometimes if this is why it wasn't covered as much because the police worked quickly. It was in a small area and they really slammed this guy down for what he did. Yeah. So there wasn't any sensationalism because things, nobody should have had to go through this at all. He should have been caught faster, but I feel like, the efforts were there to catch him as quickly as they could. They were waiting on that mistake. The second he made that mistake, they bounced on it and got him in two days. I mean, there's not a lot of news on that outside of Huntsville, Athens area. Um, I think that was more or less the reason why there just wasn't a lot to find. Yeah. Because it was kind of open shut. 
Yeah, and they, they did everything in their power, it seems, to keep him behind bars. I don't know really what the outcome is going forward because you haven't covered it yet. But a simple fact that they had to put all of those charges against him mm-hmm. to ensure the safety of the community is nonsense. I agree. So, carry on. I'm going to continue. Per Reeves... Danoshka was tried first for the attack on the woman who lived on Miller Lane in the Big Cove community. He took the witness stand outside of the jury's presence and admitted that he had given a confession to police only because he believed that he would receive psychiatric treatment at a hospital rather than spend time in prison. Despite the objection of the defense attorneys, his confession was read to the jury. The trial, which had been much anticipated all over Huntsville, was over the next day. After deliberating for 30 minutes, the jury found Danoshka guilty. Wait, sent- 30 minutes? 30 minutes. That's enough for well, them I mean, to they had a They had paperwork. a confession. It doesn't matter. Yeah, they have basically. to go back there and sign paperwork. That typically takes a while. 30 Probably. minutes? Oh my God, get the fuck out of here. Now, this was only the first trial, too. He had several... Um, He was sentenced to 150 years in prison, and by 4 o'clock that afternoon, he was on his way to Kilby Correctional Institute near Montgomery. Here's number five. Unfortunately, even with a 150-year sentence, he could be out of prison in five years and three months for good Fuck right off. Fuck off. I'm sorry. I'm going to cut that. I'm not going to cut that. I'm going to leave that in there. Jesus Christ, are you kidding me? Five years? 150 years. You know what? Eligible for parole in five years. In three, Fuck it. three months. Five in years, three months. months. Oh, let's tack those three months on. We're going to add those from the months that we took away from his previous rape charge. Yeah. And put him in a work camp. Jesus Christ. I will give you this. District Attorney Fred Simpson announced that a letter writing campaign would be launched to demand that the legislator change the good time law, which would make... Danoshka eligible to get out of prison for good behavior and over 3,000 letters were received but that's not all right he was trying I mean there's only so much a DA can do in that case he's he's trying but you don't need to overturn a law like that you need to change other laws oh my god I'm so frustrated right now Because overturning a law like that means that people who are in on drug charges that are doing good behavior and things like that mean that they won't get out earlier because of their good behavior. But you have people. Maybe we maybe we should take the minimum mandatory sentencing from drug related crimes and move it on to murder related crimes. Oh, oh, you know what? That's a thought. There's a thought. There, there's a big thought. But anyway, carry on. Moving on. Once all trials had taken place, he was sentenced to 830 consecutive years at Holman Correctional Facility in Altmore, Alabama. What was his minimum sentence? It did not say because I think it was added on for each one. So consecutive, not concurrent, not consecutive? Or is it consecutive? consecutive. Okay, consecutive. Concurrent is, if I remember correctly, concurrent is together, yeah. Uh. So I I couldn't find what the minimum was, but I'm assuming since the first one was 150 years, it was probably along those lines. So each specific trial probably had around five years if we're going to guesstimate. So you're talking like a minimum of maybe 20. Okay. And he was... After all of the trials. But he was 35. Right. Maybe at the end of it, he was 40. Who knows? 
There's no way. Oh, he was 35 when he was arrested. Yeah, when he was arrested. But once all the sentencing came down, how old was he? That was 1980. All the all of the trials had been had taken place by 1980. Oh shit, that was really fast. Okay. Yeah. Um. Okay, so because the first appeal was in 1981, so he should have been completely done by 1980. So he could potentially get out at 55. 56. I'm guesstimating. I, I couldn't find anywhere where they gave an exact um, year, but I'll get to that. I'll get to that. Okay. His brother was horrified to learn of John's crimes. He flew to his mother's home to tell her in person. He also urged his brother to confess if he was guilty. After his brother was found guilty, he broke all communications with him and he died of, and his brother died of cancer from around 25 years later. Oh, and they, com- he completely severed any communication after he was found guilty. Well, I mean, that really sucks. Anytime you talk about these cases, it's, and I'm not saying that the victim's family don't go through as much, uh, but I think the perpetrator's family goes through a lot as well because they, they get harassed and they, they're losing a family member too. Well, and his and, brother lived there. So I'm sure a lot of people saw it as he brought him there yeah. because he moved there to be close to his brother and he literally attacked the neighborhood his brother lived in. That's so it's awful. And his brother, I mean, I read how he responded and I mean, he, he said like, I feel like the brother I knew is dead. I don't know what happened. I don't, I don't understand. There, there's nothing I can look back on our life as children that would justify or even explain why he is the way he is. So, yeah, I mean, I can, I can only imagine the mom. Um, it, he, he must have been really worried about her if he flew to see her so that he could tell her in person instead of doing it over the phone. That's just pretty rough. That's awful. After one of his convictions... Danoshka spoke to a Huntsville TV news crew while he was being transferred to a state prison cell to wait out his next trial on October 17th. A woman saw the broadcast and recognized his voice as the voice of the man who attacked her on November 17th, 1978. She also said she recognized his large, odd eyes as the ones she had seen moments before she had been blindfolded and sexually tortured. Oddly enough, this woman was never contacted prior to the broadcast to identify him by the police. So I don't know if they didn't need her to identify him. They had enough probably from her report to to nail him. I mean, it was it was the same MO during the same period of time living in the same area. I'm sure they didn't really need a lot. And they were probably, like I said before, trying to protect the victims as much as possible, it seemed like. Probably. When Danoshka was interviewed in 1980, he defended himself by saying, <laughs> I had to take a breath. How can they condemn what they don't know about? There was no way even I could have foreseen any of what has happened to me. When asked what he had to say about his victims, he replied, in the general sense, I feel sorry for anybody that is in pain, whether physical or emotional, but everybody doubted his sincerity. I'm sorry, sir. What has happened to me? What has happened to me? You're the one who inflicted that on them. But no, let's talk about your own pain. Please tell me this guy is dead. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I'm going to pause this for a second. Okay. And just to review, by the way, before I get to the appeals, there were 18 total victims. My God. 13 crime scenes. So some of them were multiples at different crime scenes. It started in early 1978 and went through September 1979. It went 18 months. That's a victim every month. And, and they worked fast, as fast as they could. So I can only imagine what would have happened if they hadn't gotten yeah, that type of es- escalation. Like, uh, oh, my God. So I will say, stick with me. I have a fun little twist at the end that I think you're going to like. But first, I wanted to go through one of the appeals that he did try to do just because I found it interesting because it actually has a transcript from the trial And it does give two examples of things that could have gone wrong, but did not go through. Okay. Number one, um, just wanted to make a point. There was not a warrant for his arrest procured prior to his arrest when they pulled him over. Yeah, but typically you're required to have, typically you're required to have a warrant for arrest. But wasn't his license or registration out of date? Yes, but I don't know that that was good enough for them to excuse. That's that's what the appeal is about. Okay, so that was that's one of the points that. So I just wanted to clarify: there was not a warrant for his arrest because I don't believe at that time they had enough to get a warrant for his arrest. They definitely had enough for very very high suspicions that he was guilty of it but not necessarily for a warrant. So the appeal was arguing two grounds for the reversal. One, and this is going to be quotes from the appeal, that his warrantless arrest was illegal for lack of probable cause, thereby making his later confession inadmissible, which was one of the main reasons why they think the jury came back with a guilty (laughs) verdict in 30 minutes. Two, that the confession was improperly induced as the result of promises made to obtain psychiatric help for him and to drop all but one charge if he made a statement. Hang on. Can we go back to the first one? Uh, I'm assuming that when they arrested him, they read him his Miranda rights. And so, okay. All right. So we're going to get to why Miranda rights are so important. Carry on. Okay. So to answer the first one, the answer from the, the judge was in this, in, in the instant case, the facts unearthed by the investigating officers clearly establish reasonable or probable cause to believe that the appellate committed the instant offense. Therefore, on determining that probable cause to the arrest existed, the next question is whether the arrest was legal where the officers failed to formally procure an arrest warrant before making the arrest. In the instant case, for all the investigating officers knew, the appellate may have been committing or preparing to commit another sexual assault at the time his arrest was ordered. Considering the circumstances surrounding this case, we do not find that it was mandatory for the police officers to first seek out 
a magistrate and attempt to attain an arrest warrant before dispatching officers to pick up the suspect and bring him to the police station. Okay, so same thing as, um, uh, what's his face? Uh, now I'm gonna blank on his name. Um, guy who killed a bunch of women in the 60s, brown hair, douchebag, uh, Zach There's Efron. a lot of all of them. Zach oh, Efron, oh, Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy. Ted same Bundy. thing for uh, the arrest of Ted Bundy. Yeah. Yeah. So on the second point about his confession, again, they're trying to make the confession inadmissible. They said the appellate's, now this is not the response. This is their case. The appellate's brother, Ludwig. So, I mean, I think this is Russian. Ludwig. So his brother, okay. His brother's name is Ludwig. Mm -hmm. uh, Danishka testified that when he came to the police station on the night in question, he had a conversation with police officers and Charles Hooper from the district attorney's office. He said he was told that they wanted to get a confession from his brother. And it was mentioned on several occasions that his brother needed psychiatric help. <laughs> that could have been in passing because it was dang apparent. He needed psychiatric help. Yeah. I mean, anybody it's, 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 it's inconceivable for like a, I'm not going to say a normal person, but for an average person to see somebody who commits crimes like this and not immediately assume that there's something mentally wrong with them. And I'm not saying that there's not something mentally wrong with him. I'm just saying the first assumption that comes to your head is, well, that dude's fucked up. He's got to have a screw loose. Yeah. So it might have been in passing. It might have been, look, you're, Something's really fucked up with your brother to be able to do this. You might want to just get him to confess because this is not going to go well for him. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not, gee, good. I mean, well, I'll, I'll keep going into yeah. it because there's an actual um, test testimony here. But I'm just saying, like, I could see how that would be in passing. I mean, with these types of crimes, like, there's, if I was a police officer and I had had to be, knee deep in these cases because I'm not even doing that. I'm very, very high leveling this. They probably needed psychiatric help at, while doing these cases. There's a lot and of them that said they lost sleep. They they didn't spend any time with their family. They were terrified for their wives and children. Like I can see that they, they might have easily said that in passing. Them, the jury, uh, anyone who heard about it yeah, yeah i can see them needing psychiatric help also i'm not excusing the police because i'm the last person to do that just want to make that clear but carry obviously on. likewise he said he was told that if his brother confessed it was likely that all the other charges would be dropped and it would probably be treated as one charge and not a list a total list of charges okay so that was told to the brother right this was not told to the actual uh, uh, what's his face that committed this crap John John um, I wanted to say his last name but I can't say his last name because Danishki whatever Dan it was Danishka Danishka it was not actually said to John and it was not put in writing so therefore it's not Okay, go on. All right, <laughs> go on. I'm just, I'm being that person. I'm sorry, I'm being that person. 
The witness said Mr. Hooper indicated to him that his brother would receive mental care, although he did not actually say so. The witness conveyed this to his brother prior to the confession. The appellate testified on his own behalf at the hearing and the following took place. Question, did either or both of the officers mention anything to you about only making one case against you? So this is with John. At that point, nothing was mentioned in that context. During the early part of the evening, the primary emphasis seemed to be toward the fact that I needed psychiatric care and that they even went to the point of discussing a supposed FBI profile that had, made, had been made on my type of case, describing the type of character and so on that would be involved in this type of a situation. Question, did you tell them that you felt that you needed psychiatric care? I didn't tell them anything during the first half of the evening, as I'm sure the officers would testify. Question, did they tell you that they could get you psychiatric care? They definitely conveyed the idea that the only hope that I had was, <laughs> was that I, for their positive testimony, saying that I was cooperative and would talk to the officers, and if I would not cooperate, then there was not a chance. That sounds pretty standard. Okay, two things there. Um, number one, uh, even though they say it, it's not in writing. It's not like some kind of deal that's broken between the DA nope. and his lawyer. Did he have a lawyer? I'm assuming not. And number two, conveyance is not an actual, it's not them actually saying it. That's your. That's you surmising. That's your opinion about said. the situation. Mm -hmm. you, that's kind of like the difference of um, when when people say, "Well, you implied." No, you inferred. Exactly that's the difference. So you can't say, "Well, they conveyed it." Uh, no, that's not what I said, is it? There you go. Ah, there we go. I broke it down. <laughs> So the next question, do you recall whether or not the officer said to you that they would only charge you on one charge? Answer, they did not specifically say that to me, no, sir. They, in fact, like I said, nothing was said about that in the early part of the evening. All of the discussions concerning possible imprisonment or how many charges that I would be imprisoned under came later on in the evening after we had left the police station and came back. Now, at that time, there definitely was talk of that in fact. They left the police station and came back. I'm assuming, I'm assuming he means they went to like the jail, like took a break. Oh, and okay. then well, back. yeah, that's because they never let him go. So question, what was said specifically? I believe that it was detective sharp, although I couldn't swear to that. But one of the officers did tell me that one case alone, first degree burglary in this state, there is 10 years to life and that they had enough to lock me up for good anyway. So it really didn't make any difference. Okay, let's break that down. In one instance, specifically, I can't quite mm -hmm. remember. Okay, is it specifically or you can't quite remember? Carry I couldn't on. swear to that. Wait, I couldn't swear, swear to, to that. To that. You're, last time I checked, you're giving testimony. You did swear. You, you swore did swear. to tell the truth. <laughs> also, you said specifically, which is an indicator that you know an exact, indica it, it's an indication of an exact fact. But carry on. You can't be quite sure or whatever. Appellate likewise testified that my brother told me that he had talked to Charlie Hooper, that he had talked to the police officers out there, 
that I would be charged with a single charge of burglary, which carries 10 to life, that if I made a complete confession, that that is the only one I would be charged with because they could get me any amount of time that they wanted to on that. Okay. Did you get that in writing, sir? Apparently not. Why didn't he get a lawyer? That's what I don't understand. Oh, wait. Did he think he was too smart for a lawyer? Probably. Come on. Come on. You okay. Know it. Yeah, he probably thought. I'm he surprised was he didn't. He didn't try. You know, like do his own defense. Uh, Ted, Ted Bundy. Yeah. <laughs> he pulled him Bundy. <laughs> the appellate's lawyer, uh, employer likewise testified at the voluntariness hearing from from the record. Question, Mr. Reed, do you remember anything conversation between you and DJ and Mr. Hooper or any other police officers? wherein the defendant was promised that he could go to a psychiatric hospital and that he would never go to jail. Not in that word. No, sir. I think the wording was he needs help and that he needed to be put where he could get psychiatric care, but not in the words that you put it, Mr. Simpson. Okay. That's a blanket statement. Samantha, (laughs) you need help. I know I've been getting it. (laughs) I'm not promising you uh, that I'll give you help. I'm just blanketly saying that you need help. Just in general. There we go. Those are the distinctions. Carry on. Question. Well, did you tell the defendant that he was not going to jail? No, sir. Charles Hooper, an assistant district attorney, took the stand and testified as to the conversation he had with the appellate's brother and the employer prior to the confession. Question. Did you ever make a statement to Mr. Reed and to the defendant's brother that he, the defendant, would only be charged with one offense? answer i never used the term one offense he asked me what was fixing to happen <laughs> was such an alabama thing oh my and i told him that he was fixing to be charged with this offense question for the miller lane offense answer for the miller lane offense but all in fact i used the term all i said all of this evidence will be submitted to the grand jury and it will ultimately be up to the grand jury question Did you say to Mr. Reed and to the defendant's brother that he would not go to jail, but would go to a psychiatric institution or the like? No, sir. DJ asked me that. He asked me, said, I'm concerned about my brother's mental state. And he said, you know, what is going to happen? And I told him that that was not up to me, that that would be up to the court. Officer Charlie Norman was recalled as a witness for the state. He said he was president when Hooper had the conversation in the controversy with the appellate's brother and employer. The record reveals the following. Question, did you hear Charlie Hooper or anyone in your presence? Well, let's just discuss Charlie Hooper. Did you hear Charlie Hooper tell Mr. Reed or the defendant's brother that he would be charged, that the defendant would be charged only on the Miller Lane case and no other? No, sir. Did you hear Mr. Hooper tell these gentlemen in your presence that the defendant could go to a mental institution and not go to prison? No, sir. Question. Did anyone else in your presence then or at any other time tell Mr. Reed or the defendant's brother that he would be charged with only one crime and not all of the others? No, sir. The only conversation that I heard was that they wanted to be explained the system of the process and that we would charge There would be one charge as far as that night and the rest of the case or whatever would be presented to the courts and would be out of our hands. That is the idea that I got that they wanted us to explain the system and that the attorney probably would ask for psychiatric examination and so forth. That's a standard protocol at the beginning of any case that you always do that. Yeah, I don't. Okay, carry on. 
but the conversation was that the police department would charge him with only one crime that night. Well, yes, sir. We were going to charge on this particular case that night, but the other evidence and so forth on the other cases would be presented to the court and it would be out of our hands. And that's the idea that I thought was being given across to the brother and to the defendant. Yeah, that night he was only being charged with that one exactly. thing. Because that's all they had at the time. Well, that's the only thing they, they felt they had concrete at the time. It the was, excerpt it was up to John who confessed to the rest of it. Are you kidding me? I, that was his own thing. I mean, good on you, buddy. The excerpts from the record here above set out are certainly sufficient to support the decision of the trial judge that the confession was voluntarily given by the appellate. Whether the standard applied is that of preponderance of the evidence, great weight of the evidence, or substantial evidence. So basically, nah, dude, sorry. You're still guilty. All right. So, I mean, I, f I found that pretty interesting because it was kind of like, I can just see the judges sitting there going, oh my gosh, really? I feel like okay. that's half, I feel like that's more than half <laughs> of the appeals that go through the court system. Uh, you got to try and I get that, but the judges have to be like, I have to sit through hours of testimony from people that are all going to say the same thing that they were there and that they didn't say it and that there were plenty of witnesses. And then I have to say, yeah, Sorry, dude. We're not going to change it. Better luck next time. Bye. Yeah, no. Which is basically what it was. But like I said, I, I get it. They got to try. I think he sunk himself. Like, he just couldn't keep his mouth shut. No, he couldn't. I think he so, was a little bit proud. <laughs> a little bit. Just a, just, just a smidge. The earliest parole hearing I could find was March 2004. His first victim showed up with a petition signed by 2,054 people opposing his parole. Oh, shit. She said, Danoshka has served just over 24 years of his sentence, and I've already served 26 years. There's no parole for me. Five minutes later, his parole was denied. Yes, Five girl, minutes. get it. He was again up for parole in August of 2010, which he was again denied. He died at the age of 76 on September 9th, 2020 of COVID-19. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm not... I knew uh, you would like that little twist. <laughs> COVID-19 was a terrible thing that happened in the prison system. Like, there were it, people... It really it, was. It was awful. It was terrible. But I'm pretty. I happy. like the idea that he died not being able to breathe. I like the idea that he died not being able to breathe, especially when he almost suffocated his last victim or strangled mm -hmm. her. So, yeah. Sue me. Don't sue yeah, me. No. I don't have any money. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a waste of everybody's time. <laughs> so much, so much wasteful. <laughs> but oh my God, dude. What a great. Ooh. This is a case. Oh, what a great case. It was so glad to be out of that headspace. Fucking terrible, but yay. What? It's over. What a case. What the fuck? I can't believe it wasn't covered more, but I, you know, like I said, I think it was kind of like a open shut case. And I mean, this, there wasn't a lot of appeals. It was like the jury was like, no, 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 he did it. Well, I mean, okay, it was open and shut, but he had 18 victims. Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. That's what surprised me. 18 victims in a, such a small place. I would have thought that would have been reported a lot more than it was. Yeah. I've never heard of this. Like, absolutely never heard of this. 
I didn't either. I, I searched to see if anybody else had ever covered it and I didn't see anything, which really surprised me. But yeah, well, so that's it. And he job. is dead. Good. One less there, is, there was no, there was no parole for him. They said, no, thanks. He's already served 20, what, 23 years. And I've served 26. 24 he's he served just over 24 years of his sentence and, and i've served 26 what a, what a quote what a bad what a quote i had to put it in there awesome. there's no parole for me that's amazing I, I i mean and she got 2054 people to sign a petition opposing his parole i mean that's yeah i mean I would she was not letting that happen and i don't blame her wow 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 okay well good job as always I tried. Um, I forget how this ends. I'm literally blanking right now. You're just so angry. <laughs> I am. I am just so incredibly angry about this whole situation. Well, it's you know, it, it ended in the best possible way. It did. It, yeah. Yeah. He didn't get out. Nope. He died in prison. And I'm sure his time in prison was not enjoyable. Hmm. man 2020 that means he was in jail for 40 years hmm. not long enough but whatever not long enough no um okay all right i think i have it i have it back in my head uh so great job uh Thanks. where can That's our bad. four <laughs> listeners find us on instagram samantha <laughs> at reaper tales podcast you can find us at Reaper Gals Podcast on Facebook. And you can email us at ReaperGals at ReaperTales.com. Hey, I did it without you making it. Hey, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Be sure to uh, rate, review, like, subscribe, whatever it is, whatever platform you're listening on, because we're on all of the platforms now. Um and we, 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 the ones that have, we see you. Uh, you can't see me. I just did the whole like chin thing. Hey, she, thanks. She did a cute, cute face or something. Uh, no, I think it was supposed to be a cute face. It, it wasn't, unfortunately. <laughs> it's, it's an angry face as well. But be sure to like, review, and subscribe. Um, when you do those things, it just kind of gives our podcast a little bit of a boost so more people find it. And, um, and keep sending us in, uh, ideas. I've gotten a few ideas this past week, which I've added to my list. So keep on sending them, please. Wait a minute. Who's sending you stuff? Is it on our social media? I got to start. No, <laughs> no, no, this, that was, this one was, uh, somebody who just started listening that I know. Um, sent me sent me a a couple ideas okay also uh, if you get weird responses on our social media again that is me it's not samantha if you get a more serious one it's samantha so probably just now i'll just pretend now i'll just pretend to be you (laughs) yeah there you go (laughs) you can take credit for it samantha's normally the one who responds on those things so if you have a topic suggestion that you want to give to her she's going to be the first one to see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more than likely. Anyways, until next time. <laughs>